Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email. Welcome to the show. A little technical difficulty there. But what I wanted to say is that there has been many emails lately asking me about eroticized rage. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard of that term, but it was a term designed and developed by Patrick Carnes, who saw a certain segment of the population of sex addicts who had fused together in their childhood um, rage, angry about something, and to self-soothe that anger 
they would fuse it with acting out behaviors. Maybe they would um, stimulate themselves and masturbate. Maybe they would look at pornography. Maybe they would sexually act out. But that behavior occurred because of the rage that they felt inside. The two things were actually fused. And when that happens, it's very, very difficult to figure out how to make that better. You have to work with a trauma or anger specialist who has his or her certification in sex addiction. And so I don't know if there's been something on the YouTube lately that, you know, has spurred these emails to me asking about that, but that is the simplistic version of eroticized rage. And again, it was coined by Dr. Patrick Carnes, who noticed that in a certain percentage of his sex addiction population. Well, now speaking of anger, speaking of rage, We actually have a specialist on tonight who has made it his mission to help people who have been arrested for some sort of sexual activity. You know, there is no doubt that arrest is one of the most terrifying moments of a person's life and family members in particular can go through all sorts of trauma responses. It can be so difficult to come to terms with the events that led up to that arrest because being arrested for a sexual crime creates stigma and shame, and there's just no doubt about that. And when people have been through that kind of process, they typically go into isolation and loneliness. And we all know that isolation and loneliness can be precursors to sexual acting out. So tonight we are actually going to be talking with Jim Prager, who is a specialist and put together a program called PRISON, and then in capital letters, conversation and that program was created to deal with the shame and isolation of criminal charges and imprisonment and I've got to tell you um, it is a small segment of sex addicts who end up committing sexual crimes but the ones that do whether it's Uh, Drug trafficking, I'm sorry, sex trafficking. You can tell I came uh, out of a holiday. I actually went on vacation last week, and uh, I am not as focused as I need to be. So I am just shifting that energy right now to get focused and to tell you that some of the nicest clients that I have had have been in trouble with the law, have been arrested, have done prison time um, or jail time, and none of them 
had the opportunity to be supported by a program like Prison Conversation. Now, Jim's goal is to provide information to help people process what's going on and what needs to happen next. It's not just for the addict. It's also for the family. It may even be, well, more specifically, an opportunity to provide information to help people process what's going on and what needs to happen. Because we all know that attorneys can be ill-equipped at knowing how to handle this. And so Jim works with individuals and families to help prepare them for that prison experience, establish goals to work on during that time, and help them figure out their exit plan from prison, prepare them for life after prison. And that piece is absolutely critical. So he's going to be sharing a little bit about his life and why he decided to make this a mission. And i got to tell you, Jim is incredibly passionate about this. So I'm really looking forward to having him on because this is quite a story. He's created quite a mission, and he's helping people all over the world with it. That's what we got going on today. Now, I was talking to you about my vacation. Well, it was really a workation. So I have one, if not two, very regular listeners who I accidentally forgot to tell that I was going on vacation. And so they were waiting for my um, my, uh, virtual call. And so I won't out who they are, but they know who they are. And again, I am so sorry. I am a therapist and a coach that typically when I make a mistake, like I double book somebody, I really try to figure out a way to give them an extra appointment, work them in at the end of the day. I mean, it's just what I do because I know their time is very, very valuable too. I mean, I don't care what they do for a living. I don't care, you know, how many kids they have. I just know that although we all make mistakes, when you profusely apologize and when you um, try to make it up to somebody, it ends up maybe relieving oneself of some guilt. Um, it was interesting today. I was talking to somebody who, he's actually a therapist, and he said, Carol, what do you do? I was supervising him. He said, what do you do when you have angered a client? And I said, well, you know, I always, how am I accountable for the anger? What did I do that contributed to it? Because invariably, I did something. You know, maybe I was in a bad mood and my tone was off. Or I um, I was a little harsh because they had had this difficulty over and over and over again. And so when somebody calls me on it, or in his case, they just missed his appointment and he knew that it, it was out of anger, um, I say that I use a process that I think is important for all of us. Um, it's called the Honopono Pono 
process. And you know, if you've listened to my show, that I'm a big believer in sending positive energy out there, and I think everything's energy. And so it's really, really, really important to um, stay as helpful and hopeful as one can. But when I make a mistake, I say four things to myself. I say, I am sorry. This is Honoponopono. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And I love you. So say that I um, I was angry with what my client had done. And, of course, we try to hold back on that. You know, it's not up to us to be judgmental in any way, shape, or form. But if that came through, and if a client said, you know, I can tell you're irritated with me, I would look at how I contributed to that. And then I would, of course, profusely apologize and talk about it because in healthy relationships, conflict breeds intimacy. And then for the next two or three days, several times throughout the day, I would say those four statements. Because when you say, out, you know, it, to yourself, put it out there, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry would be, I am sorry that I did not contain my emotions. I'm sorry that I impacted you that way. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, you know. And the second Ho'oponopono method is, please forgive me. Please forgive me for not having done a better job of being your therapist or your coach. Please forgive me for having a bad day. And again, I don't say this to the client. I say this to the universe. I put this energy out there. The third one is thank you. Thank you for having the courage to assert yourself. Thank you for, you know, being honest enough to have some conflict. Thank you for enlightening me. And that last one, I love you. I love my client, although it could be because that can happen. You just love your clients. They're just the kindest, um, the most well-intentioned, whatever. But it means I love you for being human and, and sharing your experiences with me. Now, interestingly enough, we're, we're talking about prison today. And that Ho'oponopono method came out of a prison with inmates who had life sentences. And this psychiatrist, as opposed to talking to the, the clients um, there, he would look at their chart and he would read through it and he would say those four things, even though he had not met the prisoner. He would say, I am sorry. I am sorry that abuse happened to you. I am sorry you witnessed domestic violence between your mother and father. I'm sorry your mother shot your father. I'm sorry your brother died at age six, whatever the I'm sorry was for. And then he would say, please forgive me. Really representing our system. Please forgive me that I couldn't protect you. Please forgive me that there weren't resources. He took that on himself. And then he said, thank you 
thank you for showing me your pain. And last but not least, I love you, which from the psychiatrist meant, I love your essence as a being, and I know you're in here for life, and I know you've committed terrible crimes, but you're still a worthy person, and I know that there's a part of you that is really a very good person, and I want to proceed with care, kindness, and compassion. And he would just put out that energy. And believe it or not, these guys just started, they just started getting better. So this tonight is a show about not being judgmental and an understanding how families and prisoners go through this and understanding how sex addiction can escalate and evolve into criminal behavior that probably that person never had any intention uh, to begin with. So I am so honored to be talking with Jim Prager, who has started this very important program. And again, it's called Prison Conversation. Jim, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. How are you? Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on and have a chance to talk with you. I'm very delighted to be here. Um, Yes, well, you know that I... I am really invested in sex addicts who are in recovery and even the ones that aren't, getting the resources they need to make things more palatable, to improve their lives. And and really, I believe a lot of that starts with psychoeducation. And you have made it your mission to treat this very, very special population. So, I've talked to my listening audience earlier and told them a little bit about the program, but why did you create Prison Conversation? In many ways, it was based on my own experience when I was arrested for criminal sexual contact and um, realizing that we just were never prepared for this. We don't have any idea what's going to happen. I I know from myself and talking with many others that somehow when you're committing sexual misconduct, it's not you're not gonna get caught. And it's kinda of like you're six foot tall and bulletproof and all of a sudden you're arrested and you realize you're not six foot tall and bulletproof and it's very, very scary. There's a risk of suicide, um, and I tried myself the day after I was interviewed by the state police, so i um all too familiar with that and, and have talked to others who feel the same way. So I wanted to use my own experience and my own recovery, and I have 32 years, almost in June it will be 32 years clear of sexual illegal sexual behavior, and um, over 20 years now out of prison. So I've lived enough to figure out that that I can make a difference, and I want to help others. Well, yeah, I bet. So you took a situation whereby you had wished there had been some support, and you identified a need, and once you got out – you were able to create this mission, uh, this program, 
for families and individuals that, well, really, it's for families while their loved one is in prison, and then once they get out, how do you support them? So talk a little bit about how individuals and families benefit from your program. Well, I think there are a couple of ways people can benefit. One is prior to sentencing, I'm able to talk with people and give them both some, you know, do's and don'ts of prison life, which most of us don't know, have a clue about. It's just so it's a foreign language, a foreign country for us in many ways. Uh, I can also help people to come to terms with um, what's happened. I'll give an example of that. There's a mother that I'm working with currently who is, she's in her 80s and is very upset that it's likely she will pass while her son is incarcerated. And if you do the math, that makes a whole lot of sense. So I, I have worked with her instead of trying for compassionate release, which is something that she wants or some appeal, try to create things so that he has a softer landing so that when he does get out, if you're not around, he has a place to stay or, or the things like that or people that he can connect with. That's the best single thing you can do. I also try to work with her to understand what he actually did because she made a point that it was there was no physical contact. Um, but he, he met somebody online and it turned out to be a sting operation. And I pointed out to her, unless he was just going to take her to McDonald's, you know, he was intent to have physical contact and that's how he was sentenced. And the important thing there is to help her and others come to terms with what you actually did and not hold on to a fantasy where you can minimize. Because I think we need to understand what someone did, hold them accountable, but give them a lot of support. And families need that just as much. This mother is just heartbroken. Well, absolutely. And Well, yeah, and, you know, sex addiction causes so much collateral damage, and truly, families don't know where to go with their feelings. I mean, they may talk to their pastors, and the pastors may be very judgmental. They may talk to their doctors. People don't understand about sex addiction. They look at everybody as as being very broken and damaged, and you know, they don't realize that it's horrible to be in federal prison and then to get out and not be able to have a job and not be able to have that housing. I just read something, and maybe you can clarify this, but, you know, when you are um, released from prison, you are given, is it a $100? Um, get, not gift I, card, it is but, 100 now. It wasn't. It was 50 when I got out in 2000, so inflation, I guess. But I think there's there's a bigger issue. Uh, there is very little help in people getting 
who are preparing to get out to what to expect when you actually get out the door. We're not very good. I think we're a little bit better than when I got out in 2000. But um, let me, I'll give you an example of why I'm saying this. Uh, they had a class for reentry, but I was not allowed to take it because it interfered with my job assignment in the prison. And if you really think about it, which was more important? Now, to be honest, because I had some good family support, I probably didn't need the class. But the people who made that decision wouldn't, didn't know that. And so it was a very kind of, you know, you, your work assignment has to come first. And the, the assumption is that because if, you, if you're not going to work, you're slacking, not that you're not going to work because this is information that could be helpful. That's the mentality that's just endemic in our prison system. Hmm. And I, well, that makes a lot of sense. Oof. And, you know, I'll give you well, another example. Um, yes, yeah, I was very fortunate. My children visited me on a regular basis, and on the weekends they did. I had one phone call per child. And that persisted the entire nine years that I was incarcerated. When I got out, you know, the condition was no contact with with minors. And even though I had had regular contact with my children throughout the nine years and that was my goal was to continue to interact with them in safe ways when I was out, the two years that I was on parole there was no contact allowed. And to me that's an abandonment of the children that was created by an institution. And I had argued that why don't you, since I'm seeing a required therapist, while I'm there, I call the kids. The therapist is on the other line. So nothing is is hidden in that regard, but they don't do that. And it was just kind of that rigidity. So it's it was very difficult getting out. I think in many ways it was as difficult getting out of prison as it was to go in, because I felt like I was leaving prison with absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's just really, really difficult. Yeah, Over and can time, I ask you? Yeah. Yes. Can I ask you from a, a personal standpoint, I want to ask you, do you think that led to you feeling more guilt or shame And then I also want to ask you, do you think the majority of people that you help develop an action plan once getting out of prison deals more with shame or guilt? Probably in this regard with the children, I would say probably more guilt. I mean, I have plenty of shame, and I still carry some of that. I've gotten a lot better over the 20 years, but I would say guilt because my behavior in this instance was causing them to feel abandoned by me. And that's a pretty awful thing to be feeling. 
And there well, was absolutely. no one available to help me cope with that either. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I am really impressed with the fact that you couldn't get that for your own life, but you made that happen in your programming for the people that you work with. Um, well, it's we like learned... you, you don't get a do-over, but you do it over. Well, we learn from our experience. We learn the, the damage done, and we look to find ways of making a difference. And I know when I left prison, and I was in very rough shape mentally, but as I adjusted to life outside, I recognized I have a voice, and I'm not going to live the rest of my life in shame. I'm not proud of what I did, but that doesn't have to define who I am today. And that's a message that I try to help others that I either mentor in locally here in, in Ohio or when I work with people. We can change, and I think we all have the capacity to change and having having some goals to to strive for makes a huge difference. If you just want to get out and get on with life, and that that's so general general that it's very hard to to follow it. There's too many ways you can get off track. I think we really need to have some goals that help us get through a difficult situation. Um, And I tell people before they enter prison, they should have a sense of what they want their life to be like when they get out because when you have that, you you know what you're working for and you have an incentive to follow through. If I want to get out and regain my social work license, which luckily I was able to do, by the way, these are the things that I'm going to need to do while I'm in. I wanted mm-hmm. to maintain contact with my kids, so that meant that I had to continue my work of recovery and, and accept responsibility for what I had done. Otherwise, I would lose that. And I think it, it was I was lucky to have a wife or ex-wife, and she chose to divorce me, which I understand. And um, But she didn't hold the kids away from me like a lot of people do or she could have. And she let the kids know where I was and why at, at a level that they could understand. And I think a lot of people underestimate children and tell them, you know, daddy's work or something like that. And we do a disservice because kids can figure things out, and when we're not honest with them, it comes back later and they it damages trust. And so obviously um, I'm a social worker too, and one of the things I know is that you had to go through the Ohio Professional Licensing Board and appeal to them to get your license back, right? Yes, I had to do that, yes. And, and that took you how long, that process? Well, 
Well, I got out in 2000, um, moved to Ohio in 2003, because I felt like I needed a fresh start. I was seeing a therapist around 2010, something along those lines. Don't quote me on the year. And he encouraged me to go after a social work license. So I talked to the board. They said that I had to take the social work exam because it had been a long time. And then after passing it, because of my criminal behavior, I would have to go through an extra step, uh, which could be a hearing or it could just be um, written, which is what ended up happening. It was a letter of responsibility and the therapist working with me and someone else who was closely, knew me very well, wrote letters of support. And I was granted a restricted social work license. Basically, the restrictions were to make sure that a supervisor, you know, knew about my situation, had a copy of the restrictions, and no contact with minors at a professional level, which makes all the sense in the world since I had abused one. So I was whether that was a restriction or not, it wasn't something that I was going to do. Yeah, I do feel I can I do feel I can talk to people about children because I was I had some training in child guidance raising two children myself, you know, I certainly do have experience in opinions and and self-qualified to share them, but I don't work directly with children. And so that's a great segue because I know that in working this, this prison conversation, and that is, again, the name of the program, I told everybody before, it's prison and then con, capital C, capital O, capital N, um, yeah. What is your role in, in working with minors? Are you able to work with minors? I don't work with minors, but I will talk to families where there are minors involved <clears throat> about sharing what what the children need to know to be honest with them, to not tell lies, take into account their maturity level and under, ability to understand. When families are comfortable, I say go ahead and let the, take the child for a visit or a phone call, um, whatever you're able to do and with COVID. It's pretty much um, phone calls and, and J-Pay right now too. But people well, have to sense. be – you're actually using the family to be a liaison for the kids and instructing them how they can help the kids. I thought, you know, when I was asking you that question, I really meant, you know, what happens if you're, you're aware of minors that, you know, lose their minor privilege and are now in adult court, and is there a way to represent or advocate for them with their families? I, I've i become aware of a couple of situations 
where that has happened. I know a therapist in the area who does that. So luckily I haven't felt that I needed to involve myself there. That I, It's certainly something that I um, would consider if it was appropriate. Um, but that also reminds me of something that I think is worth sharing. Okay. I read a book, and the name of it, I think it's called Harmful to Minors by Judy Levine. Fabulous book. And she talks about a situation with a 13-year-old girl whose parents were involved in a very bitter divorce. And she apparently met this guy online, and they ran away together, and they were caught. The guy was sentenced. He was 21. She was 13. And the judge talked about and sentencing how this guy had ruined her life. And it, it occurred to me, you can't really know that. I mean, judges say things like that, but you don't know what, how she's going to progress from this point. And, but it, another, there's another point to this. You know, we're making her a helpless victim. If she, instead of running away with somebody, in her anger had killed one of her parents, would she have been conceivably tried as an adult, <clears throat> which is, you know, a very different scenario, you know, and I'm glad that's not what happened, but that's, <clears throat> it, it really struck me that how hypocritical we are with whether children can be tried as adults, let's say. <clears throat> Use my voice, I'm losing my voice a little bit, Sorry. Um, and it, it really that story made me think about that whole scenario and how we look at um, teenagers who, whose brains are not well developed, and we right. try some to to really make them into adults, and it's so unfair. Absolutely. And so, would you let our listeners know a little bit about? all the realities of the prison experience in general and how it's different from the outside world. Um, You know, what do they have to deal with in prison and how do they cope with it? It, It's a very, very different lifestyle. For one thing, prison life is very regimented. You get up at a certain time, you have breakfast and you know, your, your day is very structured, and you have to be wherever you're scheduled to be or you're out of place, which is a ticket that is going to impact you later on when you when you try to get the role. They look at how, how any misconducts you have. <clears throat> There's no privacy in prison. Your mail is opened when you get it, unless it's legal mail from an attorney. That they, they they don't open. So it's kind of, you assume like everything you do and say is read and heard. And that, that creates just a lot of stress. The higher level security prisons tend to have a fair amount of violence. There can be gangs. Um, 
I found to a large extent the sex offender population that, that I was part of. The violence certainly could happen, but it was exaggerated. And I found there was a lot of safety in numbers. You kind of spend time with other people in for the same kind of offense, and there was a certain protective barrier about that. There were also people that would say, come up to me and say, you know, if anyone bothers you, just let me know and I can handle it. And really it's a protection racket, and let's call it for what it is. To me, you know, when, you know, you buy someone some coffee or tobacco or whatever it is that they're interested in, and they take care of if there's a problem. Uh, It's not a healthy way of dealing with situations, and luckily there weren't a lot of times when I had to call on that, but it was something that was fairly easily available. And, and, you know, in prison people are always looking for a way to make some extra money because there is not much of that in prison. And so the hustle could involve making cards or, or letters or something or arts and crafts or protection rackets. And there were also people that were always interested in trying to get you to involved in something like gambling or sexual activity. So you real, I had to learn to watch who I associated with. And that's a learning process. And I try to help individuals today cope with that. Be kind of be a little smart and pay attention to who's who they're hanging around with. Yeah, I, I bet. And so helping a family just even understand that um maybe that the aggressiveness, the violence is Overreported that it's it, it's not as bad as one would fear because I know that for the families that I've worked with whose husbands or sons or fathers have gone to prison that that's their number one concern will he be mm-hmm. hurt how badly will he be hurt and how will that affect him you know so now I'm I want to ask you um, obviously. Many of the sex addicts that end up going to prison go to prison because they have had experience with minor. And as a result, when they come out, they're obviously placed on the sex offender registry. How does that play a part in the work you do with them and the work that they are looking for? Well, I think it plays a role for sure, I let people know that whatever the registry rules are, you have to follow them. And I stress that because people can be charged with violations as a result of that. So that's important to know. It's also important to know what you can or can't do, and, and this gets tricky. For example, at one point my current wife and I We're looking to move, and Ohio was one of those states with a 1,000-foot rule from the school. And there was 
a school, but if you walk through someone else's house, through their yard, backyard and front yard, it might be closer than a thousand feet. If you took the normal walking, it would easily be over a thousand. So I called an attorney that I know to ask how they define it and was reminded that since my conviction was before the thousand foot rule took effect, I didn't have to worry about that. I didn't know it. So there's just so many little intricacies that can either benefit or or create a problem for, for people. But learning as much as we can about what you actually are needed, required to do and what you don't have to do is, I think, really important. It also impacts families. So, uh, for example, there are approximately 912,000 people on sex offender registries in the United States. That was the last time I checked. Um, about 19,000, by the way, in Ohio, about 40,000, by the way, in Michigan, which I find interesting because Michigan's not that more populated than Ohio. But families get impacted also, and in very subtle ways. This wife, for example, was sharing at a meeting that I was at that she was leery about applying for a different job because if they check social media and find out that she is married to someone on the registry, she may not get the job, which really is a bad story, I think. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And obviously guilty by association. Yeah. They don't want, and and that would make an offender feel extra guilt and shame. That again, yeah. that collateral damage lives on. So now, you obviously said that you had to check with an attorney to find out about the what was it, one thousand foot rule or one thousand rule here in Ohio, and you have to know in your own area what if there's a re- residency restriction and what it is. Absolutely. So, so that must be what you advise uh, the families that you're working with to check with an attorney, and yet you and I both know that attorneys can be very ill-equipped. They can, they can look that kind of thing up, but attorneys do not always know how to really advise their clients. They are ill-equipped to handle this in a lot of respects. So do you work with attorneys to coordinate services? I can. Um, Unfortunately, I rarely get the opportunity. A couple of years ago, I talked to a group of attorneys in this area about what I do with the goal that I would get Um, some opportunities to help families. Um, That never materialized. I'm not sure what the reason for that is. And um, a lot of times I will actually suggest to families to call law enforcement or the sheriff's department rather than an attorney because I think sometimes 
um, attorneys don't always know. And there are, I know our local sheriff, for example, has a map, and if you give them an address, they can tell you if it's legitimate or not legit, legal or not for the person. Um, they may or may not know about the date of conviction. That you would have to follow up further on, but they would they would know if it's within a thousand feet or not. There are also websites that have been developed over the years. There's a group called NARSOL, N-A-R-S-O-L, uh, and National. I. It's a. They have good information on that website also, and you can use that as backup. But I check with people who would know in the local area in addition. So you have two sets of um, ideas to check on. And N-A-R-S-O-L, if you type that in, that would come right up. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And in some ways, as I hear what you're doing, you remind me of attorneys that end up being advocates for their clients. Does your work, uh, does it remind you of the same thing? I mean, how does your work differ from what attorneys are paid to do? Well, I definitely do view myself as an advocate that, you know, guilt or innocence is irrelevant in that sense for me. My, My role is to be supportive to to give good advice, to mm-hmm. help them come to terms with whatever it is they're facing. Unlike attorneys, I I don't give legal advice. Um, and you know, in if I don't know a question, I'll either refer them to an attorney that I know, or or do that myself. But uh, I try to keep that boundary because I don't want to step on someone else's territory and I'm not an attorney. I don't pretend to be. I see my role primarily as as an advocate, as a support, as a place to vent. Um, Interestingly, just before calling you, I looked at Jay Payne. It was a guy who's incarcerated. Um. And I'm working with him on a plan to, that hopefully he'll get out next February. Actually, not February; it'll be May. He goes to he has to have a parole hearing in February. But he mentioned that he had tried to call a couple of times, which he has, and it just he just hasn't called at a time when I when I'm around or can talk to him. And he said, "I hope you're not mm-hmm. upset." Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to reassure you, I'm not upset with you if you just happen to pick bad times to call. Um, and I can't, you know, with prisons, you can't call them back. Right. No, as, as a matter of fact, you're accepting a collect call, right? And that costs you probably $6 every time you, you accept it. No, he, these are prepaid. He pays for the calls. His family does. Um, Got it. I, okay. We've got, we've really, that's one area of prison life that's gotten a lot better where there are very few collect calls these days. Um, I think in our county jails there still are some, but in prisons 
um, people can buy a phone card and they get X number of minutes. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that because that was always a hardship for spouses and girlfriends um, that couldn't that were on limited funds anyway. So you know, accepting a six dollar phone call three times a week was money that they didn't have. Now I'm going to yeah. ask. He went right into Shane when he thought you weren't available. He wondered if you weren't avoiding him, as if you were angry with him, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so that's what you deal with an awful lot in this population is that they immediately go into, I may have lost my only support or I may have lost one of my few resources. And I felt that at times during my time in prison, you know, when when someone didn't answer or, or you know, I did the same thing. So I know mm-hmm. what he's going through. Oh. And hopefully, well, hopefully he can get past that and accept that maybe I just wasn't around or was busy then or something. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. I want to share one thing. I don't know how exactly how much time we have left, but um, we have three minutes. Oh well, I'm going to take two minutes to tell you something then. This past okay. weekend, I. Participated in the 12th annual International Prisoner Family Conference, and it was just a remarkable experience. It was, it was strange being virtual. I couldn't, I didn't get any hugs from anyone. I miss hugs, by the way. But of course, the family experience that all of us have working together is just. So phenomenal, and I do hope on a future call that either you and I or someone from prison family, and there are a lot of awesome people involved in this, will have mm-hmm. a chance to talk to you and your, and share what we're trying to do. And we even had a presenter from Scotland, by the way. Oh my goodness! Okay, so, so tell us something. Just in about a minute, what this conference is all about. Well, I would, if you type International Prisoner Family Conference, you should come up with the website. Mm -hmm. Look at the Advocacy in Action and the conference. And there's a lot of good information about what we did this year. And it's just such a marvelous experience to be with people like-minded, people who care about each other and prison family that is so abused and neglected. Um, and, you know, there is as the advocacy in action, which I'm part of, and the conference. There's a prison's bill of rights. Um, things that we... Advocate for and want to see coming up that hopefully will at some point in the future. So I hope sometime you will do something with that conference also because it's a worthy cause. 
oh, I really would love to help this population. You know, this is a neglected population. There's so much shame that goes with it. Absolutely, yeah. I'd be more than happy to do that, maybe at the beginning of 2021. Um, I've got to tell you, Jim, you are an amazing person, and you have turned something that was very tragic into a real gift to other people, and I want to thank you Um as a fellow social worker, and also just as somebody who understands sex addiction, uh, to be available to these folks. Uh, it is like you're an angel in their lives, and there just aren't enough of you. Um, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, either to ask you questions or um, they want to help, how can they get a hold of you? My, I can give you my email. Okay. It's J I M. O-O-U, that's the letter O, and that stands for one of us, at gmail.com. And, you know, just put put in the prison or concerns in the subject so I'll know that it's a legitimate person and not a scam or something. Okay. Well, thank you again, and I will keep you posted, and we'll get you on again real soon. Okay. Thank you, and have a very good holiday season, Carol. Oh, thank you much. I sure will. And you also. Okay, take care now. Good night. Okay. Good night. That was Jim Prager. Again, the mission that he serves is prison conversation. And that's a very worthwhile cause because we all know with sex addiction, Most of the people that are in prison for exploitation and uh, didn't start there. Somehow it moved into that. All right. Thanks for being kind and caring and compassionate with me. Uh, Look up Ponoponopono. Got a great book that's just a a fun book to read. It's uh, Joe Vitale's book on the attractor factor. That's where you learn about Honoponopono as well as his life. He's a coach, and he believes in very positive things. And we'll see you next week for more sex help with Carol the Coach. As I say at the end of every show, there's only going to be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a great week.